0: Welcome to Voices of Change, a podcast for the Get the Medications Right Institute. We are on the cusp of a new era of specialty medications and gene therapies that will transform care, but we are also seeing tremendous waste. Annually over $528 billion is wasted and 275,000 lives are lost due to non-optimized medication use. misuse overuse or underuse of medication therapy can lead to treatment failure, a new medication problem, or both. Consider some of these statistics. One in ten Americans take five or more prescription drugs. More than 75 percent of all physician office visits result in a prescription for medication. Annually, more than four billion prescriptions are filled in U.S. pharmacies. And 50 to 75 percent of patients do not take their medications as directed. But there is good news. There are opportunities to control the loss and waste, whether you are involved in receiving, paying for, or delivering care. Living in a world where patients get the right medications the first time is attainable. That's what we're doing at the Get the Medications Right Institute. The GTMRx Institute convened a national task force to identify key issues and offer guidance designed to build vaccine confidence in local communities. The goal of the task force is to inform the strategies to engage teams at the community level to work collaboratively and communicate effectively about vaccination during current and future pandemics. By engaging care teams in the local community, coordinating with schools, religious organizations, employers, barbers, hairdressers, YMCAs, and others, collaborating with local, state, and federal agencies and communicating to ensure an ongoing effective, efficient, and engaged community response. We believe that the health neighborhood is essential and fundamental when implementing programs designed to build vaccine confidence. Guided by the philosophy that a bottom-up approach is critical for real impact, the task force outlined the need for community members to rise above their individual agendas and reach beyond their professional and personal silos. Together, we can build a collective community approach that leverages time and trust to build vaccine confidence and impact the health of the community today and in the future. GTMRx would like to thank Johnson & Johnson for sponsoring the work of the task force. No employees or affiliates of Johnson & Johnson served on the task force, and the company neither advanced nor had approval over any of the recommendations. In this episode, Dr. George Benjamin Executive Director of the American Public Health Association and co-lead of the GTMRX National Task Force Building Vaccine Confidence in the Health Neighborhood joins us to discuss how we can overcome vaccine hesitancy and implement systems and processes to help navigate us out of this current pandemic and future ones. And that's what you'll hear about on Voices of Change. And here's your host, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Institute, Katie Caps.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Speaking with us on this episode of Voices of Change is Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director, the American Public Health Association. He served as a co-lead on the Get the Medications Right Institute's National Vaccine Task Force, Building Vaccine Confidence in the Health Neighborhood. The task force was kicked off at a national meeting co-sponsored by the Bipartisan Policy Center and was comprised of leading experts from around the country. The task force released a report in June and a set of recommendations focused on building vaccine confidence in the health neighborhood, along with additional recommendations about strengthening the public health infrastructure. The task force was focused on creating the best path forward to overcome hesitancy during the current pandemic by engaging local communities and leaders in what we call vaccine confidence leagues. Now, I'll boil down a few of the recommendations for you and put them in simpler terms. Those recommendations included accelerated approval of vaccines, an aggressive public education campaign, vaccine payment reform, improved vaccine access for primary care practices, a more effective immunization information system, no-call sharing for certain patients, and enhanced diversity, inclusion, and equity in vaccine dissemination and administration. The work of the task force was sponsored by Johnson & Johnson. Now let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. Georges Benjamin is known as one of the nation's most influential physician leaders because he speaks passionately and eloquently about the health issues that have the most impact on the nation's health today. As executive director of APHA since 2002, he is leading the association's push to make America the healthiest nation in one generation. Dr. Benjamin also serves as publisher of the nonprofit's monthly publication, The Nation's Health, the association's official newspaper, and the American Journal of Public Health, the profession's premier scientific publication. His recent book, The Quest for Health Reform, A Satirical History, is an expose of the nearly 100-year quest to ensure quality, affordable health coverage for all through the use of political cartoons. Now, let's move on to our guest. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin, to today's podcast.
2: Well, listen, thank you very much for having me with you today.
1: You know, the the coronavirus variant, the Delta coronavirus variant, originally discovered in India last December, has now become the most dominant and worrisome strain of the coronavirus circulating globally. Delta is roughly twice as contagious as the original COVID strain and as much as 60% more contagious than the Alpha variant, which itself caused numerous waves of the pandemic across the world. And according to reporting from the New York Magazine, as of the end of July, the Delta variant has been detected in nearly every country in the world, and it has fueled rapid outbreaks in places where vaccination rates are low. Delta has also quickly become the dominant strain in the U.S., where it's estimated to account for at least 93% of all new sequence cases in the country. You know, I found it interesting. I was reading over the weekend that The Guardian reported that people with wild theories about the pandemic can be found in countries even where most people don't have access to the internet or cable TV or the shock jocks that we have access to in the U.S. or any of commercial radio commentators. A common impulse is to write off these conspiracy theories, blaming them on the casualties of social media, disinformation, or silent mental issues, or shock jocks. Vaccine hesitancy, according to the Guardian, may be a symptom of broader failures. The Guardian goes on to say that what people wary of vaccines have in common around the world is that their trust in the state has been eroded. You know, the piece in The Guardian ended by saying that without understanding this, we're going to be fated to keep channeling our frustrations toward individuals without grasping why they have lost trust in the first place. The work you did, Georges, and your co-lead with the National Task Force and the other members of the National Task Force Building Vaccine Confidence in the Health Neighborhood, considered the value of trusted sources in the community as the best messengers to overcome vaccine hesitancy. When you began that work in April, it was thought that the medical neighborhood was the place that those activities should occur. Can you tell us a little bit about the the evolution of the thinking of the task force in general when you move toward recognition that the health neighborhood was where this trust must reside?
2: Well, you know, as we began thinking about this, we recognized that, that the concept of a medical neighborhood was too narrow. You know, when people hear the word medical, they think doctors and nurses. And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to get your hands around this particular pandemic, we have to make sure that people see themselves more holistically. And we need to see, first of all, that they're fundamentally healthy each and every day. And then we wanted them to do those things that we know that are preventive in nature, which certainly have a medical slant to them, but that many people don't necessarily see this as a medical intervention, even though it is. So wearing a mask, washing your hands, keeping physically distance, some of the lockdowns that we've had, those are absolutely public health and medical care interventions, but they have such a societal overlay that we wanted people to see those as a health intervention. So as we move from this concept of medical neighborhood to health neighborhood, that was what we were trying to to illustrate. And then the other part of this was to recognize that in many ways this had become a top-down, government-driven concept. And we were trying to make this from a bottoms-up concept so that people saw themselves in their communities in a more holistic way. And we knew that if you did that, that we would be able to uh, deal with this fundamental issue of trust. Because at the end of the day, the issue around vaccine hesitancy is around trust. And while social media and TV are certainly accelerators of both good information, and we're seeing a lot bad information, the rumor mill in the community can often move a lot faster because people trust the rumor mill and they have to look up and understand better the social media activity. So when when your friend and your neighbor and someone you fundamentally trust tells you something, you're much more likely to believe that than you are the social media, even though the social media can be a accelerator, a verifier uh, in many ways.
1: I like that. Uh, you know, a verifier in many ways. Um, as you recall, during the task force discussions that that you led, Dr. Ernest Grant, the current president of the American Nursing Association, uh, said frequently, trust plus time equals confidence, um, referring to, I think, the value of those trusted relationships in local communities and the time that they spend with those individuals. Um, now, The task force recommendations set forth creating confidence activities to establish those grassroots organizations. And those grassroots organizations were envisioned as barbers to healthcare workers to hairstylists, employers to faith leaders, from physicians to pharmacists. Um, And they were called Vaccine Confidence Leagues. And they Enumerated specific steps that could be taken to to flex the civic muscle in pursuit of shared vaccination goals. Can you elaborate on some of the recommendations set forth by the task force in the release of the report in June?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that we certainly learned um, through our conversations and most of us through our experiences in both health, public health, and community engagement, we know that. People do what they do every day. They hear what they hear every day through their normal interactions. And if you want to normalize an activity, then you have to put that activity as part of a normal engagement that people do. So we were just beginning to reopen our communities and reopen our society. And one of the things people were certainly beginning to do more of was they were going back to barbershops, they were going back to beauty shops, uh, they were engaging back in their places of, of religious and faith. And as part of that process, we recognized we needed to make sure that the places that they went to, those folks were armed with the right information. Because if you think about when people go to get their their hair done, there's a lot of stuff that gets spoken of when you're in that chair. Or if there are more people in that salon, there's lots of uh, conversation that goes on. You know, some of it is the facts. Some of it are questions. People challenge one another. And so what we wanted to do was get that good information into play. Now, we actually have a good experience in doing this. During the HIV-AIDS epidemic, there were lots of public health groups that spent a lot of time making HIV AIDS ambassadors. And what we found was if you can arm those individuals with the right information, they were quite likely to be able to influence the people that were in their chairs because of, they were having a conversation. They were able to say, look, I I know you heard that, but here's what I'm hearing. And they were able to often get the right information to those folks. Now they didn't always leave the shop with, an agreement that that information was the right information, but it put that information in play. And so it, it raised a degree of, of, of um, question in the mind of the listener that there was another view that they ought to take in consideration from basically a trusted source. And I think the other thing we saw was that there are other people who are in that same situation in communities. We have community health workers. We have nurses that go door to door. We had outreach workers that did work around access to foods for communities that were food insecure, that mental health workers that were going in the communities, that we could empower uh, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Jones. These are community leaders who people listen to. And we understood that if we empower them with the right information, that People were going to be much li- more likely to listen to them as part of their trying to verify the information that they were getting. And of course, we knew from all the polls that were done that doctors and nurses and healthcare providers, particularly your healthcare provider, were much more likely to be trusted messengers than politicians and even many of the people that you hear on TV every day.
1: I think those are all very good points. And of, of course, as you know, on the task force, we had the opportunity to include Dr. Doug Henley, formerly Executive Vice President of AAFP and current CEO of ACP, Daryl and Moyer, representing primary care and internal medicine. And as a physician yourself and as Executive Director for the American Public Health Association, now that we're in a new wave of fighting the Delta variant, what do you see as a, the top three things that, that we need to do now to get our country fully vaccinated, to, to leverage that health neighborhood concept and to build these or to create these trusted conversations? And then can you give me an example of what has worked well and what's not worked so well?
2: Well, I think we need to do everything we can to normalize the conversation and to destigmatize people who are doing things that are um, helpful for their health. For that, I mean, for example, we certainly need to make sure that everybody who is unvaccinated gets vaccinated. The second thing we have to continue to do is address the disinformation that's out there. Disinformation being the things that people are saying that are definitely not true. And of course, as part of that misinformation are the rumors that people are spreading around but not doing so uh, in a manner in which they're being distrustful, which creates a area of of lack of trust. I think the third thing we have to do is we have to um, make sure that we begin strategically thinking about where this disease is going. Because as we see this Delta variant, this Delta variant, of course, is not the same strain that we had initially. And we have to remind people that the things that we did a year and a half ago, we have to build on that knowledge. And we have to, in many ways, go back to doing some of those same things to protect ourselves. But we have to also recognize that we now also have a new very, very powerful tool, which is called vaccination. And that vaccination changes the whole ball game. even though the strain has changed. We do know that the current vaccine is still effective against this new strain, the Delta strain. But that if we don't get our hands around controlling the Delta strain, that there are new strains that could take over. And Delta could be just like it was a year and a half ago with the original wild type virus, we call it, or the alpha strain, which initially started taking off. And then that one got totally overtaken by Delta. And the concern is, is it gonna be Lambda? Is it gonna be you know, some other strain? We, we name them now by the Greek alphabet. And we, we certainly hope that we don't get to a Zeta. You know, That's kind of the end right that would be a very very that could potentially be a very very powerful strain and the way these viruses mutate is by infecting another person so the more people that get infected the much more likely we are to have a mutation that occurs that will totally escape the virus so the secret i think in in a in one phrase is get vaccinated or get covid Is the way we ought to now be thinking about this and doing that as quickly as we possibly can, getting everybody vaccinated.
1: So can you give me an example of overcoming vaccine hesitancy or building vaccine confidence as we refer to it as a task force? And in that area, what has worked well? And then an example of what has not worked so well?
2: The thing that has worked the best is when you, when you come across someone who has their concerns about the vaccine, that you listen very carefully about what their concerns are, understand what their concern is, and then answer it very directly. That has worked the best. Because when you do that, you're not being deceptive. People know that you've heard them, that you're answering the question that they have about the vaccine, and then they're much more likely to get vaccinated. In fact, when that's been done, in town halls, in community forums, the the odds against people getting vaccinated is much higher. What hasn't worked real well, and of course, I think most of us don't think will ever work, is by shaming people and by calling them names and by belittling them in such a way that, first of all, you turn them off so they cannot hear your message. Secondly, you're not listening to their concerns, and third, you're not addressing what their concern is in a meaningful way. Now, when you do that, there will be people that will certainly be turned off and will never get vaccinated. And I, I know no one who who feels that they've been abused as part of a conversation is gonna to listen to you. And you've also made it less likely they're gonna to listen to anyone else, even if that person comes to them and, and listens very carefully. You lower the chance of them you know, having an interaction with them that's going to be constructive. So the more we can do to have constructive conversations with people to address their concerns, the more likely we are to get more people vaccinated. And at the end of the day, are there people that we will never convince? Yes. But to the extent that we can convince almost everyone, that's what herd immunity is all about.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point. I, I think moving away from trying to argue or debate, and and more along the lines of trying to reason and offer facts is an is an excellent recommendation. I think we know not only in vaccine health behavior, but in other health behaviors, those aren't effective measures, right, or strategies. So,
2: yeah, any any parent who's ever told their kids um, not to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then watch it quietly slurk away to go do it, knows exactly <laughs> what we're talking about.
1: Exactly. Now, um, let's move on to another area of recommendations because as you know, the task force was really interested not only in addressing issues around building vaccine confidence in the in the health neighborhood, but also looking at what needed to be done as we move forward as a nation and and discuss the importance of a a really robust immunization information system. You know, I was I was struck in a lot of our discussions, uh, particularly with the primary care physicians about the inability to receive some of that information in a bi-directional format. Many of the nation's Im- immunization information systems suffer from years of underinvestment and the functionalities and capabilities of those systems vary greatly across the states. What do you think the next steps are left for states to adopt consistent standards for providers to report and receive information about those who've been vaccinated so they can target those in in that population to have these trusted conversations? And then how should we mitigate the issues surrounding concerns about privacy and security?
2: Well, you know, in 2021, the general public has a, a, an amazing tools for us to do stuff that impacts our daily lives. You can three o'clock in the morning, you can order something both to eat to arrive at your house in a couple of days. You can shop. You can talk to someone visually. You know, pick a tool to do that. You can order a a car to come to your home to pick you up, to take you somewhere and then bring you back. And yet, in our healthcare system, the assumption is that we have the same degree of flexibility, uh, enhanced technology, which allows us to communicate, move materials and information around wherever we are to whoever we want to move it to. And the answer is we do not, that we have not yet put the dollars and structures in place for us to share health information in a meaningful way. And anyone who's been to a health facility or a doctor or engaged in the health system who had to fill out paper by hand three or four times, even for a physician or a healthcare facility they've been to before, anyone who has gone to a referral appointment only to have to refill that information out again. Uh, Anyone who's had a lab test done, only to have their physician when they go for the appointment have to bring them back because the lab tests are not there and their physician or healthcare provider doesn't have access to them knows what I'm talking about. And we have the same problem with immunizations. We have not built a robust system so that when you get your vaccinations, they go into a repository that you have access to that the appropriate healthcare provider has access to, and that you can authorize other other people to have access to it. We can do it for banking. We can do it for, as I said, for shopping, but our healthcare system is still, quite frankly, uh, in the middle ages, not the dark ages, but probably the middle ages. And we also have this huge variability in capacity between our systems. So it is important, and the task force was insistent on this, that we modernize our health information systems. We focused on immunizations because that's what this is about, but it's also about broader health information. We ought to be able to share that information in a meaningful way. We ought to be able to collect the data by race and ethnicity, by occupation, all of the things that are important for our healthcare providers to make informed decisions. And then of course, this is our information. We need to do this in a way that protects our our patient rights and the privacy of our information, but we ought to be able to share that information and give authorization to the people that should have it. And for the governmental entities that have to make broad decisions based on our health, we ought to be able to send that information in a way that's de-identified so that they can get that information so that quite frankly, we're not having to wait a week to find out how many people died when we have a tragedy like this, which by the way is still happening, we shouldn't have to have this information filled out by pen and and, and, and pencil and then facts from one place to another, which is also happening with quite a degree of commonality. Happens all the time. This happens far too often and in not having these systems are far too, too common. And we need to make sure we make those investments.
1: So, you know, we, we know that privacy and security are big issues. And I think you mentioned that it should be done in a it should be shared in a way that you can protect privacy and security. And And I, I think all would agree. Um, are there steps that you think we should take to mitigate the concerns that the public have around privacy and security?
2: I think we have to do a better job of explaining people what those protections are in place. We have enormous protections under the um, under HIPAA, which is our our overarching law that protects the sharing of our health information. I think we do, first of all, do a better job of explaining people what those protections are. But we also have to have a framework, because as you know, we're having a lot of discussions right now around sharing vaccine information, sharing information with employers, sharing information with others, the whole idea of quote-unquote vaccine passports, which is of course a misnomer for sharing the documentation that shows you've been vaccinated. It's not a passport. It's not a legal document. It is a medical document. But increasingly, without any real guidance, we have people that are now having big debates and discussions around, Should I do I have to show this when I go into a bar or restaurant? Because people are afraid. They're worried about being exposed to others. And they want to make sure that at the very least, Everyone who's coming into those facilities is vaccinated to the extent possible. But it requires us to have a framework around that information. And there will be some places where we will require to be vaccinated. All healthcare workers must be vaccinated. No doubt about that. If you're going into a conjugate setting, you know, schools, places like that, people are going to have to be vaccinated. Um, There's certainly some jobs where you absolutely have to be vaccinated. If you're on a submarine... You need to be vaccinated. The military has determined now that for readiness and security of our nation, all of our armed forces folks, um, and that also means many of the civilian contractors that work for them have to be vaccinated. So there are certainly situations where that has to occur. And I, of course, want everyone to be vaccinated. So I do think as we think through this, we need to have a, a much more structured discussion as a nation and develop a framework so that everybody knows what those expectations are. And again, we normalize the process of getting this vaccine just as we did for measles, mumps, and chickenpox.
1: Right. And having in place certain data use agreements or an understanding from the American public of how that data is going to be used could also be helpful as well. And as you mentioned earlier you know the vision of the task force was not only to look at the current pandemic but also consider that the vaccine confidence leagues would later lead to health confidence leagues in local communities recognizing again that Trusted sources at the community level are some of the most important sources to offer knowledge that will impact attitudes that could potentially impact longer-term health behaviors. Is there anything you'd like to say in your closing comments about the work of the task force that you that you and Paula which led and insights into what steps we may need to take as a nation as we move forward to avoid or mitigate some of the issues that we have confronted during this pandemic?
2: Yeah, let me just acknowledge Paul as a co-lead here because Paul is an amazing co-lead through the process. And I think that what we tried to do is create a, a framework so that communities can come together to solve many of the health problems in those communities. Because think about it, while we're all very much worried about COVID, we've got climate change issues, we have issues of gun violence. We have issues of food insecurity. We still have an obesity epidemic, an opioid epidemic, a growing epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, HIV AIDS, while we certainly have some effective treatments for it now, it's now become a chronic disease. Uh, it's something that we're going to have to come together as a community to continue to address. And we have this you know, growing threat of of Alzheimer's and an aging um, process that we really haven't gotten our hands around uh, as a nation. So we have a lot of work to do. So what we're hoping to happen with these health neighborhoods is that we can build a, a community of people who think about health in a different way from prevention to acute and chronic care so that they're working together collaboratively to support their neighbors, their families and their friends. And, you know, in many ways, this is just a start of a process, but it's certainly what, you know, public health uh, has all been about. It's what the healthcare community thinks about when it thinks about health versus medicine. And that's why we changed the name to health neighborhoods from medical neighborhoods.
1: Well, and, and thank you for that. And, you know, your, your point about aging communities, I read over the weekend that every day in the United States, 10,000 people turn 65 years old. So, and we saw some of that, I think, during this pandemic, didn't we? The vulnerable, you know, the more vulnerable populations fell within those categories, right? So.
2: It absolutely it does. And, you know, the, the good news is that we are aging. Uh, we want people to age gratefully and healthy in place. Um, the last few years, because of COVID, we've actually had a reduction in our life expectancy. So we have a lot of work to do if we're going to gain those years back. And by the way, even though we've lost in, in one one survey for one population, particularly African-American men, almost three years lost in life expectancy. Wow. You don't get that back in a year. No. So we, we got a lot of work to do. The Latino community, life, lawful life expectancy, and for all Americans, Life loss of almost a year of life expectancy. So we have some work to do. And these health neighborhoods is the way we're going to get this back.
1: Well, I thank you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you are the individual championing this on behalf of public health. And I want to thank you for the time and the energy and the effort that you spent as part of the Get the Medications Right National vaccine confidence task force and thank you for your leadership we do have a lot to do and we're committed to working to expand these efforts as well so thank you very much and until next time be well
0: that marks the end of this episode of voices of change thanks to our listeners for tuning in to learn more about the work of the national task force on building vaccine confidence in the health neighborhood and to read their final report please visit us at www.gtmr.org. As a 501c3 nonprofit, GTMRx relies on financial support from those who share our mission and vision. We would like to thank the organizations who have already pledged their support to our work. These organizations include our founding funders, the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, Johnson & Johnson, and the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, our executive members, the California Chronic Care Coalition, Kaiser Permanente, Tabula Rasa Healthcare, and the Department of Veterans Affairs, and our strategic partners. The American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, ABV, Amgen, Breast Cancer Index, Genentech, Kimber Booth, LabCorp, the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions, Om, the Journal of Precision Medicine, the Teachers' Retirement System of Kentucky, the Cleveland Clinic, the Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations, Curator, Genomind, the Association for Accessible Medicines, Avira, and Empirex. Their support is crucial to advancing the work of the GTRMX Institute. Until next time, be well.